I'd ask you, if you would, to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. We're going to be studying Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 13 this morning. And this is a section of Scripture where we see the seventh seal opened. Once you have that, if you're able, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word. And I will lead us in reading this passage. Revelation chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. There were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. So a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. So a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from heaven. It fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. So many of the people died from the waters because they had made, been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. I looked and heard an eagle flying overhead, crying out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth, because of the remaining trumpet blast that the three angels are about to sound. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. Some of you are familiar with Francis Schaeffer's illustration of a man sitting in the middle of the room and facing in one direction. Now, the man is completely convinced that he sees everything in the room, that he sees all that's there, but those that are watching him can see behind the man that there's, there's something behind him. For his part, though, the man is completely convinced that he's seeing everything there is in the room. He's convinced that he is correct. The man in the chair represents the modern secularist. Uh, the secularist is someone who is only focused on the physical. Uh, the one who thinks this universe is, you know, only matter and energy. The secularist is someone who has no time for God. Now, the secularist may or may not believe that there's a God somewhere. Some are quite agnostic as it relates to that. But he's not really concerned about that because he's convinced that if there is a God, then that God has nothing to do with this universe. He's just off somewhere else doing something else. So the secularist has no room in his thinking for miracles. Uh, he has no room in his thinking for, in particular, for what C.S. Lewis would call the grand miracle, which is God coming into this world as a man, Jesus Christ. There's no time for that. The secularist believes we must live our lives and shape our worldviews and guide our culture 
from the perspective that there is no God and that all should be secular. The secularist would have all of us sitting in the middle of the room facing one direction and smugly confident that there's nothing behind us. The problem is, of course, there is something behind us. You see, God does exist. Uh, there is the physical, we see it, but there's also the spiritual. And actually the spiritual is, is uh, the, the reality that undergirds everything. God himself is the reality that undergirds everything. You see, the Bible says that God not only exists, but the Bible says that he also is involved with his creation. So God is not a, a cosmic clockmaker that makes the universe, kind of winds up the clock of the universe, and then simply walks away from it and allows it to just go on its merry way. No, according to the Bible, God is actively involved in his creation. Now, you cannot read through the Bible without seeing that. Genesis 1 and 2 says at the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created them with a purpose, with intentionality, and with care. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that the Lord Jesus even now upholds all things by the word of his power. And if he were to cease for a moment upholding all things by the word of his power, all things would cease to exist. You see, we're not God. We do not have the power of life within ourselves. Only God does. The gospel proclaims that God became a man, Jesus Christ, and walked among us. And friends, that's what explains his life. Uh, if you've never read about Jesus, we would we'd really encourage you to read the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. And, and look at this life uh, where miracles are performed with the power of God. And where this man, Jesus, speaks with uh, the wisdom that only God possesses. You see, Jesus is God. God has interacted with this world, and he's done so directly and Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, is another place where you see that God interacts directly with his creation. At least he will. He will act in a very direct way at the end of time, and that interaction will be fierce. The day is coming, according to the Bible, the day is coming when God will unleash final judgment upon this world. And Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, really gives us a picture of the beginning of that judgment. What it will look like when God pours out judgment on this world. So we're continuing our study of the book of Revelation. Uh, in recent weeks together, we've studied chapter 7. We said chapter 7 was something of a kind of an interlude between the sixth seal of chapter 6 and now the seventh seal, which we're going to see this morning in chapter 8. Uh, and in that interlude, we saw two visions. We saw a vision of the 144,000 who were sealed, and we saw a vision of a vast multitude from every nation and people and tongues surrounding the throne. And we said that that vision taught us that the people of God will be protected during the tribulation and that the people of God will be triumphant even if they should die in the midst of the tribulation. Well, now this morning, we get to chapter 8 and the seventh seal, and we see what happens when the seventh seal is opened. This is the beginning of final judgment. This is the beginning of the time when God pours out his wrath upon the earth. But we will also see in this chapter, and I think it's wonderful, we'll also see mercy. Because as God begins to pour out final judgment, he doesn't consume everything. Instead, at the beginning, the judgment is partial 
because he's giving people time. It's a warning because he's merciful. And we'll talk about that as well. So this is a weighty chapter. I mean, if you found yourself on Christ Fellowship for the first time, we're talking about very weighty matters. And yet, we believe God's Word very clearly reveals to us even the future of what it will be like at the end. And we want to know what God has said. We're going to spend our time this morning doing an exposition of this passage, working our way through the chapter, and then we're going to focus our hearts on two key truths that you see in this passage Two truths, if you're taking notes from Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, we're going to see that the final judgment of God is sobering. The final judgment of God is sobering. And we're going to see that God mercifully warns sinners of final judgment. Look at verse 1, if you will, as we kind of work our way through this chapter together. Uh, Look at verse 1. That's where this all begins. You see what happens when the Lord Jesus opens the seventh seal on this scroll Now, if you've been tracking with us, we were introduced to this scroll, which we said was kind of a a prophecy of how end-time judgment is going to unfold. And Christ has been opening seals, and we talked about what all of that meant. But now the seventh seal is opened, and what we're expecting to see is we're expecting John to tell us about the scroll opening and to give us the contents of the scroll. We're expecting to see that somewhat explicitly because now all the seals have been broken. But instead, what you see is is this vision of Uh, angels. It's a scene in heaven. It's seven angels taking seven trumpets. And as they begin to blow the trumpets one at a time, God's judgment is unleashed on the world one at a time. So what should we make of this? Well, we said when we studied the sixth seal in Revelation chapter 6 that it was a vision of the great and final day. Uh, the day when Christ himself comes. And that's why all of the mighty ones on earth are crying out uh, to be hidden. And they say to be hidden from the face of the one who's seated upon the throne because they see him and from the wrath of the lamb. And we noted, though, that the sixth seal, while it gives us this picture of the great and final day, it doesn't tell us the complete story of judgment. You see, the sixth seal takes us to the end of human history, but it doesn't fully kind of let us know what will occur when God's judgment is poured out, how it will all play out. You see, as the rest of the book of Revelation shows us, end-time judgment is actually going to be not a one-time event, but a series of events that are going to happen over a period of time. This is the rest of the story The beginning of this story is the seal. The seventh seal is broken. And then the story is played out for us. In a sense, the seventh seal is like a flashback in a movie. Not a flashback. Uh, The director starts with an opening scene. It's very vivid. Usually grasps your attention. And then the next thing you know, the director now takes you back in time in kind of a flashback to fill out the details of how this is going to unfold, how the movie gets to the point it began with. And in my opinion, something like that is happening with this seventh seal. So in the sixth seal, you have this picture of the great and final day when Christ himself is returning in judgment. But the seventh seal, when it's opened, you get something of a flashback that kind of fills in the picture force of what will happen. So actually, when the seventh seal is broken, the scroll itself is open, and you see the contents. Only the contents of the scroll is what you read about in the rest of the book of Revelation. And that includes the judgments of God, the trumpet and bowl judgments, and the Antichrist war on the church 
and the return of Christ. So this is where we get a fuller picture. This is where we begin to get a fuller picture of how end time judgment is going to pour out. And how does God's judgment begin? Well, surprisingly, it begins with silence. So look at verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, friends, normally heaven isn't quiet, right? Since chapter 4, we've been seeing angels, and we've been seeing elders, and we've been seeing living creatures, and the redeemed of all humanity crying out in praise to God. Normally, heaven is a joyful, boisterous place filled with noise, filled with worshipers who are gladly worshiping the King of Kings. But when the seventh seal is broken, there's a great hush. There's absolute silence. What is this? Well, as many people have said, it's the calm before the storm. It is a weighty period now where heaven realizes that the moment has come for God to rouse himself from the throne, if you will, in order to pour out the judgment that he has prophesied and promised for millennia. And we read some of those prophecies this morning. In particular, we read Zephaniah chapter 4, which prophesies God's coming judgment upon all the earth. And so heaven is silent for this weighty moment, but, but really it's more than a moment, isn't it? You know, at the end of the service, we have the moment of silence. And if it goes on for 30 seconds, some of you get a little antsy, right? Start wondering if I'm okay. Is everything okay, right? Uh, 30 seconds of silence feels like a long time. But here it's not 30 seconds. It's 30 minutes. That's a long time for all of heaven to be silent. It's profound. And this silence is one of the reasons why I personally believe that God's end time judgment begins here with the trumpets as opposed to with the seals. You see, it just makes sense to me that something as momentous as God's final judgment would be offset, if you will, with, with, a, with a scene that just kind of speaks to the solemnity of the occasion. That it would be highlighted and emphasized by a solemn scene. And that solemn scene is what you see in verses 2 to 5. So in verse 2, what do you see? Well, he, John says he saw seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Now, some people believe that those seven angels are the same seven angels that you can read about in the apocryphal book of Enoch. Uh, their names are Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Michael, Sarakel, Gabriel, and Remiel, because those seven angels are also said to stand in the presence of God. But there's no way for us to know if that's accurate. After all, the book of Enoch is not inspired scripture. What's clear is that the seven angels are high ranking and they have an important work to do. These are going to be the ones that are going to blast the trumpets of God's judgment. And we'll see what happens when they've done so. It's also possible that these same seven angels may be the ones who later in the book of Revelation pour out the bowls of God's final judgment. When the judgment is consummated, if you will, completed, if you will, it's possible. But before these seven angels blow their trumpets in verse three, look in verse three, you see another angel. This angel approaches the altar of heaven uh, and he has a, a censer. Uh, he has uh, a golden incense burner 
Uh, and he has the responsibility to make an offering, if you will, before the Lord in that way. So the Jewish high priest would burn incense before he entered the Holy of Holies in the temple of Jerusalem. In the same way, this angel in the heavenly temple, that's the imagery here. He takes an incense uh, burner to burn incense in the heavenly temple before God. Notice in verse 3, though, only that the incense is mixed with the prayers of the saints. Now, this I believe to be symbolic language. We should not think of our prayers as having a, a physical manifestation, kind of like Harry Potter, pouring liquid memories into Dumbledore's pensive. It's not like that. I think we're being shown in symbolic language that God values and that God answers the prayers of his people. I think this is what this is teaching us. Well, what are the prayers? Well, they're the prayers of all the saints of all the angels, of all the ages. Uh, they're the prayers of all the men and women of God who have cried out, How long, O Lord, and your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And judge those who are oppressing on the earth and have mercy on your people and come establish your kingdom. All of these prayers are valuable to God. They're valuable, and they rise up before him as incense, if it were. And the point is that God hears and he answers those prayers. And that's what you see in verse 5. That's the imagery there in verse 5, because this angel then takes the, the, uh, the censer, the incense burner, and he fills it with fire from before the, the throne there in the temple there in heaven, and then he throws it upon the earth. What is that? Just imagine that scene. This holy angel tanks fire from before the Lord and throws it down upon the earth. What is that? It is a picture of the fact that God's judgment is, is going to fall. God's judgment is coming. That's the imagery that you see there. And then, of course, you see the response of creation, thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What are we seeing in verse 1 to 5? We are seeing that the prayers of God's people are powerful. Uh, the prayers of God's people, sin before the Lord, as incense as it were, it's pleasing to him. How does God respond? Well, he sends fiery judgment at the right time. So do you, brother or sister, ever get tired of praying prayers like, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Do you ever wonder if God hears you when you pray and ask him to stop the oppression that we see all around us in the world? I wonder if we've stopped asking great end times focused prayers, asking that, that Christ would establish his kingdom, that he would reign over all. Well, if that's the case, if we do grow weary, if we have grown weary, this passage, verses 1 to 5, is a reminder that those prayers are vital. Uh, it's a reminder that we have a part to play in this. And what is that part that we have to play? Well, it's, it's our prayer. The Lord doesn't need us at all. But he graciously allows us to be involved in his perfect plan for all of history. And our prayers are significant. And they play a role in the sovereign God bringing judgment in its time. So our prayers are never wasted. They are powerful. God hears them. And in his perfect time, he'll answer them. And I am grateful for what I think I see as a growing concern for prayer in Christ fellowship. I'm grateful for that. The corporate prayer service on Sunday evenings, it's a sweet time of prayer as we gather together once a month in order to approach the throne of grace together. Uh, it's growing. More and more people are joining with us as we do that. Uh, I hope that you'll consider joining us this coming September 18th at 545 here. 
Many of you have also begun praying at 5 o'clock every evening, praying for events in the world, praying for our nation, uh, praying for this church. I'm grateful for that. Bill Horner is going to share more about that next week. Carlos and Shannon Seaman continue to faithfully pray for overseas workers the first Sunday evening of the month. Others join with them in that. We'd love to see those prayers continue. Why? Because prayer matters. Because it's powerful. Because God hears our prayers. And prayers work, isn't it? One of the most helpful things I ever heard Elizabeth Elliot say was, I don't imagine that prayer is an easy thing. I think of it as work. And it is. It's work. It takes effort. It takes thought. It's because you're speaking to God. You're not just talking to the ceiling. It might feel like that sometimes, doesn't it? It feels like that. But you're actually talking to the Lord of the universe. And so we shouldn't be surprised if prayers are as powerful as the Bible says they are, that there will be opposition from the flesh, from within, and from without. But the work that we have is what? It's to continue to pray. It's to continue to lift up our hearts before the Lord. Uh, James chapter 5, verse 16 says, The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. You see that in verses 1 to 5. Now look at verse 6. The angels who had the trumpets prepared to blow them. And as we will see, when each angel blows trumpet, a plague falls upon the earth. Now, when I was a child and I was bored in church, I would read through these trumpets over and over and over. I'm sure that never happens at Christ Fellowship. But I was amazed by the vivid picture that's presented here. Uh, in some ways, it's, it's stunning, it's bewildering, it's even a little scary to think about the imagery that's here. There's a lot going on. So let me make just a few initial observations, just two initial observations really to kind of orient our thinking so that as we work our way through this passage, hopefully it will help us. First, I want you to notice that the trumpets can be broken up into two groups. So the first four trumpets, the ones that we're studying this morning, uh, the plagues that come from those trumpets are actually directed towards creation itself, towards the physical world, towards uh, the earth and the sea and the fresh waterways and the heavenly bodies. Now, people will be impacted by those plagues, but indirectly. The focus of the plagues is on creation itself. People are impacted Indirectly, people today, both believers and non-believers, die as a result of natural catastrophes that happen like hurricanes and earthquakes. I believe it will be the same way, the same way at the end. But the final three trumpet blasts are different. We're going to study those, Lord willing, next week. And we're going to see that, we'll, we'll see the first two of those anyways. We'll continue on through the book. Uh, we'll see that the focus of those trumpets is on humanity itself, specifically upon those who reject God. They're focused. They have a focus. And the focus is on those who are rebelling against God. And the Bible says very clearly that many will die as a result. A second comment, I believe that we are intended to take this portion of Revelation basically literally. Now, there are symbolic elements here. But I believe that the idea we're seeing here, because I understand the scroll itself to be a prophecy of God's judgment at the end of time, is that when God's final judgments begin to be poured out on the earth, dramatic and shaping and supernatural events will happen. Things that seem weird to us right now. 
So if you struggle with that, now if the idea of miraculous plagues coming down from God strikes you as odd, consider that it must have seemed odd to the people of Egypt as well when God brought judgment upon them and what happened? The Nile was turned to blood and the sun was darkened and pests were multiplied in unimaginable ways. And after observing the phenomenon, what was the conclusion of the Egyptian magicians? This is the finger of God. And I do believe that at the end of time, we're going to see not just the finger of God, if you will, but his mighty right hand, and he's going to be pouring out judgment on the world, and it is going to be dramatic. It's going to be staggering. He will move in power, and nature itself will be upset. So with that in mind, let's briefly look at these four trumpets, glean truths that we can from them. First, look at the first trumpet in verse 7. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were hurled to the earth. So a third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Now this plague is reminiscent of the seventh plague that fell upon Egypt, when hail mixed with fire falls upon the Egyptians there. Only notice that John sees hail and fire mixed with blood falling where? Upon a third of the earth. The geography is dramatically increased. And the impact of the plague is that a third of the earth, a third of the trees, and all of the green grass in this vision, well, they are consumed. Now, I don't know that we're supposed to take everything about this strictly literally, as if 33% of the earth and not 34% of the earth were burned up. I do think that the basic idea is that the earth will be partially destroyed as a result of this first plague. The devastation will be cataclysmic. Think of a third of the world, cataclysmic, but it will not be total. And that's the, that's the reality that separates the trumpet judgments from the later bowl judgments. The trumpet judgments are partial. The later bowl judgments, they're total. They're final. The second trumpet is blown in verse 8 and 9. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain ablaze with fire was hurled into the sea. So a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. Uh, this plague is reminiscent of the first plague that God's brought against Egypt, where the Nile itself was turned to blood. Commentators question if John is perhaps seeing something like a, a comet that's falling. You know, notice that it says, John says, it was something like a great mountain. John is lisping, as it were, to try to help us understand what he's seeing in portions of Revelation. Either way, the impact of this blazing mountain is what? Well, a third of the sea becomes blood, and as a result, the living creatures die within that portion, and all of the ships there, they're destroyed as well. But again, the main focus is what? It's partial, not total. A main, the main idea is that the seas and the aquatic life within them are partially destroyed, not totally destroyed. But the destruction will be, once again, cataclysmic. Uh, yeah, uh, unbelievable. Verse 10 and 11 records what happens when the third angel blows his trumpet. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from heaven. It fell on a third of the rivers and springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood. 
So many of the people died from the waters because they had been made bitter. This again is reminiscent of that first plague because once the waters were turned to blood, the Egyptians were unable to drink it. Well, now you have uh, another phenomenon falling upon a third of the fresh waterways of the earth and, and they are turned to uh, a poison. The word is wormwood. Now, wormwood as we know it is a, a bitter plant. It's used in the Old Testament as a picture of bitterness. It's a symbol of sorrow. Wormwood, as we know it, is not poisonous, but what John saw by this wormwood, many people died as a result of drinking from these waters. But again, the idea is that the fresh water sources of the world will be partially destroyed, not yet totally destroyed. And then in verse 12, you see the fourth trumpet. And the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day was without light and also a third of night. And here you have something that's very reminiscent of the ninth plague upon Egypt where darkness falls upon the Egyptians for three days. The word struck there, it translates a Greek word that gives us the English word plague. Uh, and the imagery is that the sun is struck, it's sickened, it's weakened, it's unable to shine for a third of the day. Again, some of this language may be symbolic, but the main idea is that the heavenly bodies, as we know them, are going to be shaken. They're going to be shaken. They're going to be impacted by this miraculous plague. Now, the imagery here is stunning. You know, whatever your perspective on Revelation, the imagery itself is stunning. Uh, in rapid-fire succession, John sees these, these four trumpets blown and these four plagues fall upon all of creation. God begins to pour out his judgment upon a rebellious world and nature is impacted in a way that it's never been impacted before. It's very dramatic. But look at verse 13. According to verse 13, things are going to get worse. Look at verse 13. I looked and heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who live on the earth. Because of the remaining trumpet blasts that the three angels are about to sound. Now, eagles are impressive birds. They have, uh, they have beaks and claws like iron. They can swoop down on unsuspecting victims at excess of 100 miles per hour. Uh, it's appropriate, therefore, that John sees an eagle, which is a bird of prey, flying overhead, calling out these woes upon those who dwell upon the earth. Woe, woe, woe. The word woe it speaks of misery. Uh, it speaks of condemnation, it speaks of despair. In other words, these next three trumpet blasts are going to be extreme and serious for those who live upon the earth. And that phrase, those who live upon the earth there, it's a technical term in the book of Revelation. It speaks of world dwellers. Uh, in other words, worldly people. In other words, those who live their lives in rebellion against God those who will not have him be their king. And these next trumpets are going to be blown and they're going to impact those who live upon the earth, those who are in rebellion against God, dramatically and fiercely. So that's the, that's the passage. Now I want us to use our remaining time this morning and focus our hearts on two truths that we see in this passage. The first truth is that the final judgment of God is sobering. So look at verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then skip down to verse 5. The angel took the incense burner, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it to the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, 
flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. As we said before, it is significant that when the seventh seal is broken, all of heaven is silent for 30 minutes. Since creation, cherubim and seraphim have been praising the Lord as the holy, holy, holy one, crying out in worship to him. But when verse 1 comes, the seventh seal is broken, it becomes evident to those in heaven that the time of God's final judgment have arrived. And so the angel songs, they're silenced. And they're silenced for 30 minutes. It's a weighty silence. And then verse 5, uh, it's, this, it's this, this drama, if you will, uh, played out before us where the wrath of God, symbolized by fire from the altar, it's thrown upon the earth. And then look at the impact of these trumpets, right? The first three are marked by fire. Did you notice that? There's fire and hail in verse 7. There's a great mountain ablaze, flaming mountain in verse 8. And then there's a great blazing star in verse 10. And then you get to the fourth trumpet and the sun and the moon and the stars are impacted by that. So what are we to make of this? Well, friends, it tells us that the final judgment of God is going to be sobering. And it's a serious matter. That it's weighty, that we should give our minds to it. Many people think of God as a kindly grandfather figure who is up in heaven. Uh, he's always ready to help us, you know, whenever we need, if we ever get around to needing God, you know, he's God, he helps people, that's what he does. And this kindly grandfather will be there for us if we ever need him to. The problem is when you read the Bible, you realize that God isn't pathetic. He's not pathetic. He's holy. He's just. He's true in all his ways and his judgment will be holy and just and true in all its ways. And considering that as sobering as these trumpet judgments are, consider that they're still temporal judgments pertaining to this time. But then the Bible teaches that there's a coming judgment that's eternal, that goes on and on and on and on forever. And so as staggering as these trumpet judgments are, they're nothing compared with what the Bible teaches about the eternal destiny of those who do not bow the knee to Jesus, who do not turn from their sins and receive him as a, listen, a good and gracious king. Uh, for those of us who know Jesus, it's amazing to us that anyone would not want to follow him. He's so good and true and right and lovely. Why would we not want him? The Bible says because we love darkness rather than the light. Because our deeds are evil, that's why. And so the Bible teaches that there is this judgment coming. It proclaims it over and over. Who's the one that talked about it the most? Jesus. He's the one that warns us over and over, flee the wrath which is to come. And so we said it's going to be a weighty topic this morning because it is a weighty topic. But we need to think about the reality that God has promised that the judgment he will one day pour out on all who rebel against him, who refuse his salvation in Christ is eternal and serious. The Bible describes the ultimate dwelling place of those who rebel against God as a lake of fire. That's the imagery that is used. There will be nothing good in the lake of fire, and none who go there will be good. Listen to how Jonathan Edwards put this in a sermon entitled, The Ungodly Warned. And I pray, I pray that you won't just write this off. We don't do a lot of hellfire and damnation preaching. But there's a time for you to consider the fact that you're going to die and stand before God. 
And friend, I may not even know you, but this is the time for you to consider you're going to die and stand before God. Listen to what he says. He says, God will exercise no pity towards you. If you might have his pity in any degree, that would be of more worth to you than thousands of worlds. That would make your case to be not without comfort and hope. But God will exercise no pity towards you. He've often said concerning wicked men that his eye shall not spare, neither shall he have pity. And he will cast upon you and not spare. And you will see nothing in God and receive nothing in him. But the mighty falls and outpourings of wrath upon you every moment. And no cries will avail to move God to any pity or in the least degree to lighten his hand or assuage the fierceness and abate the power of your torments. You will find that none will pity you in hell. The devils will not pity you, but will be your tormentors as roaring lions and hellhounds to tear you in pieces continually. And other wicked men who shall be there will be like devils and they will have no pity on you, but will hate and curse and torment you. And you yourself will be like the devils. You'll be like devils to yourself and you will be your own tormentors. The picture the Bible paints of hell is not that it's a fun party that the other bad people you know are going to go celebrate. The picture the Bible presents of hell is of only experiencing the presence of God in his wrath forever and ever and ever. And maybe if it was 20,000 years, it'd be okay because there'd be hope. Or maybe if it was 200,000 years, It would be okay because there's hope, but there will be no hope there. There will be no hope there. And so the Bible says, weigh the reality of coming judgment, flee the wrath to come, flee from it the way you'd flee from a viper because it's real. It's real. The one who said he was God and that he was going to die and rise from the dead three days later. That's the one who said this and he was God and he did die and rise from the dead three days later, proving in history that he's true. It's weighty. Friends, I know it's weighty. It's sobering. And praise God that there's a second truth. God mercifully warns sinners of final judgment. Look at verse 7, the second part. So a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. And then verse 8, the second part, a third of the sea became blood. And then verse 10, the second part, it fell upon a third of the rivers and springs of water. And then verse 12, the second part, a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars. Friends, throughout the Bible... God mercifully warns people of coming judgment. He warns them. So God gave the people of Noah's day a preacher, Noah, who proclaimed for them for more than a hundred years that judgment was coming, that judgment was coming, that they should get ready, that they should repent, but they did not hear. God sent prophets to both Israel and to Judah, warning them that if they did not repent, judgment was going to fall and they refused to repent and judgment fell. The Lord Jesus spoke to the people of Israel in his day about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And he said, there will be not one stone left upon another. And that happened in 70 AD. You see, it's very possible to hear warnings about coming judgment and ignore them. People have been doing it from the very beginning of time. 
there's nothing new about unbelief. Unbelief has been around from the beginning. But do you notice in this passage, while there is judgment, do you notice the mercy? Because he doesn't come and wipe everyone out all at one time. Instead, he's warning judgment is coming. Final judgment is coming. This is ramping up towards the end. And what's the call? The call is repent. Turn away from living for yourself. Turn away from serving yourself and instead, instead, entrust yourself to a gracious Savior, the Lord Jesus, while there is time. And it's good news that Jesus receives all who come to him. And so that's the application. You see, the Bible, it, it, friends, it takes us seriously. It tells us about who we are. It tells us that we were created by God. We were created with dignity. Everyone in this room, everyone in the world has dignity because we're made in the image of God and we were made to know him and worship him and serve him. But we have all been infected, as it were, by sin. Our first parents rebelled against God. We all come from them. We send in them and we come from them and we've inherited the same nature. And the, the most fundamental aspect of that sin nature is this. I want to be the center of my life. I want to be the king of my life. I want to direct myself where I go and think what I want to think. And our culture is so rife with that. But you see, it's just reflecting the heart. It's what sin is. And sin is rebellion against God. And the Bible says it's serious. The Bible says that all who continue in their sin and do not turn from it, they will face God's judgment for rebelling against God, for taking all of the good gifts that he's given them and using it for yourself and not for his glory, but the Bible, and here's the good news, the Bible is so, so clear that there's salvation. Even this morning, God has provided a Savior so that you don't have to perish in your sin. That's why Jesus came. Jesus did not come to give us a nice moral example of a kind person who did good things for other people. He did not come to show us some superior philosophy of how to live a good life. He did not come as some kind of a radical to overthrow the oppressive powers of the time. That was not his mission. His mission was to die, to give his life as a ransom for sinners. That's why he came. He lived a perfect life because you and I have failed to live that life. That's the life we needed if we were to stand before God. He lived it. And then he died on the cross under the wrath of God. You, you think the weight of this wrath here will imagine that Christ for three hours, the very son of God, is experiencing the infinite wrath of the father against the sins of all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead, showing that he is true. And now the offer, the way to escape the wrath to come is by putting your trust in Christ and Christ alone. It's by turning from your sin and it's by placing yourself wholly on him saying, I'm putting all my weight in what Christ has done, his perfect life and his perfect sacrificial death in my place so that I don't have to experience the wrath of God. Friends, that's the offer and it's free. You cannot earn it. You must receive it as a child freely. You must receive it. And we pray that today you will. Oh, friend, if you have questions about that, I'm sure, I'm sure some of you have questions about that. We're honest, we love honest questions. Talk with us. We'd love to explain to you this gospel, this good news of Jesus. Talk with you about what Christ has done for us and about what he will do for you if you will put your trust in him. It's weighty, but there's good news. Well, friends, many people in our day are like Schaefer's man in the chair. 
They imagine that if there's a God, he's distant, he's far away, he's remote. But we see in the Bible and we see in this passage that God is not distant, that he is involved directly. And one day that involvement will be plain for all to see because judgment is coming. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, for those of us who know Jesus, for those of us who have found salvation in him, we have work to do. Uh, In some ways, we're to be like the eagle of verse 13, crying out, warning people of coming judgment. And we're supposed to be evangelists, sharing the good news of Jesus with people who don't know him so that they might join us in the full and free and life-giving salvation that we've received in Christ. So Christ's fellowship, we've got a task. It's to make disciples. And may God help us be faithful to do that. Let's pray.